Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of So What Else. I'm your host, Caitlin. As you know, So What Else is a story-based podcast. So today we have Nicole Langman on to share her story. We talk all about her story of walking through deep rejection. Um, She tells about her marriage and how that fell apart and led her to writing this book called You Are Wanted, Reclaiming the Truth of Who You Are. I highly suggest it if you've ever dealt with any form of rejection in your life, whether that's from a parent, a girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, a job. She really does an amazing job of kind of reframing that and walking you through it, a beautiful, beautiful healing process. You know, I say in this episode, Nicole is a licensed social worker. She does therapy and counseling with people. And I said to her, I love interviewing absolutely all of my guests, but I really love it when I get to interview a counselor or a therapist because they just say so many smart things. And I love hearing about things like cognitive behavioral therapy and narrative therapy and these different ways that our brain responds to trauma. I just think it's very interesting. So she brings a lot of that in to her own personal story. So not only is she a professional, but she has walked this personally and applied it to her own life. So there's a really lot of good stuff in here. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with her and I know that you will too. So stay tuned. Nicole, welcome to So What Else. Thanks for being here. Hi, Caitlin. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited. I just finished your book yesterday. So I am like ready to dive in, ready to chat. But before we get into your book, why don't you introduce yourself to us? Like, who are you? What do you do? Mm. Yeah. So I am a a wife and a mom. I live in Canada, Ontario, Canada. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Canada, Ontario is right above Michigan. And yes. uh, so we share, we share the, you know, the cold in that direction. And uh, with Michigan, is it cold in Jersey? Do you guys get snow? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The winters oh, are, okay. the winters are rough. I mean, yeah. they're rough. I mean, compared to like Michigan, Ontario, you, maybe you wouldn't right. think so, but we do get a lot of snow and it's cold. We and do, yeah. you know what, it, are you guys humid? Is it humid by you? Yeah. In the summer, it's really humid. Yeah. 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 So then it's like, because Jersey is so humid, it's like that wet snow, icy, mm, it's heavy. Chunky. Yeah. 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 What yeah, are you which do? is, you know, in the winter, it's like beautiful because the, the evergreen trees, they just sink mm. right to the ground covered in snow, which is beautiful. Um, and then the summer with the humidity, of course, it's just terrible for the hair. Oh, and, horrible. Uh, awful, awful hair days. But um, yeah, so I'm in Ontario, Canada. I'm a, uh, um, a registered social worker in private practice. So my work is with women. I work with women only. I don't do couples or I did historically worked with couples mm-hmm. and, and men, but now just work with women. And, um, I'm also a author of just, uh, coming up on the one year birthday of my book, you are wanted. And I'm a Christian women's uh, speaker. So, and in my personal life, I'm a travel junkie. I love travel. Can I say junkie? I didn't. Yes. I love, love, love travel. Um, and uh, I'm just newly married to my husband, Brent. We've just celebrated three years and uh, we have a blended family with three adult children. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm a dog lover. We have a dog. Her name is Sadie. She's highly anxious. We've just weaned her off of her anxiety medication. So she's been a, she's been a bit of a, uh, a handful in our family, but so sweet. That, okay. My mom's dog just started anxiety medication, but okay. like, yeah. it's like human medication right? That they just give to the dogs, which I think is like, my mom was literally going into the pharmacy and she's like, sorry, I got to get Milo's Prozac. Like, and I was like, is that (laughs) real? Like, I'm like, not, we don't have a dog. I'm not like well-versed. Like I was like, are you making a joke? Are you being serious? She's like, no, I'm dead serious. Are you kidding? I was like, (laughs) I was like, the pharmacy just like hands it out. Like it's, and she's like, yes, he needs it. Are you kidding me? He's a mess. I'm like, all right. Right. <laughs> this is, and you go in, and so like it's prescribed from for us is prescri- prescribed from the vet, but you pick it up at the human pharmacy. Yes, yes. And so you go in, and you say, you know, for Sadie, and they say canine, and then everyone looks at you like you are yes, yes. like this this shame feeling of like my dog has a problem with, um, just well, my, how it shows up in her is just she's just uh, 
she's just wild in terms yeah, of meeting new people. She just wants to charge the people. And that's the same um, as my mom's dog. Yes. Yeah. It's just a little bit. And it used to be that it was two pills one day and then mm-hmm. one pill the next day. And so you could see the difference in her. And so we would just explain it away. Sorry, it's just a one pill today. But you know what we did? Maybe <laughs> this is something to pass on to your mom is uh, maybe what, what we started doing was we told, started to tell people that she's a rescue and then people have a lot of compassion. Oh, They're like, oh that's good. Well, for a rescue. Yes. So yeah. So something to think about. That's a good idea. No, for real though. Like I make, my parents have two dogs. They're both Shiba Inus. Riley, the girl really has no problems. The boy Milo is a hot freaking mess. She is like, <laughs> I can't tell you how many prescriptions this dog has. It's like lined up all on the counter. And then when Milo. I was watching the dogs, I was dog sitting and I'm not such a dog person. There was like all these medications to dispense. Yeah. I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, like dogs are harder than yeah. children. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And you would have the comparison you would know. Exactly. I was like, yikes, guys. This is like a lot of work, man. But what are you going to do? I feel bad. They're cute. Man's best friend. Yes, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And if I had a dog with me on my walk last week when I almost got killed by a bear, then maybe I wouldn't have been as scared. So maybe I should get a dog. Yes. Yes, exactly. So maybe I should get a dog. Those are, yeah, scary situations. I'm so glad that you're with us to have this conversation. Oh my goodness. It'd be so sad if we hadn't gotten mm. to do this because of the bear. Yes, but here we are. Of the bear. Yeah. Here we are. So listen, your book, You Are Wanted, Reclaiming the Truth of Who You Are. It's a book about mm-hmm. recovering from betrayal and from being like unchosen. And I just want to read, I don't usually like start off with a quote, but page five of your book, you had this little blurb that I was like, this is so beautiful. And you basically just said like, listen, This is how I want to start off my book. I want to just tell you that you, my friend, are wanted. Not just a little bit wanted, but you are wholeheartedly shake the heavens and move the mountains wanted. You are chosen, you are delighted in, and you are adored. My heart's desire for you is that you would let those words, those truths, saturate your soul. And through that deep knowing, you would understand your worth and your desirability in a new way. And I just think that's so beautiful. That brought tears to my eyes when I read it. And so, you know, So What Else is a story-based podcast. So obviously you have a deep, hard personal story that led you to the place of writing this book and writing those words where you so deeply want other people to know that they're wanted because that was a journey that you walked through. So why don't we start there, you know, just kind of like with your story that led you to writing this book and then we'll break it all down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'll take you back to, you know, kind of the 2000s-ish, early 2000s, when I um, got married and began this amazing relationship with this guy. Now, just for just for information's sake, I have a, a daughter from a previous relationship mm-hmm. and he stepped into um, the space as, as uh, my partner and as her father. And that was, uh, you know, everything that I had kind of hoped and prayed for mm-hmm. and things were, were great. And when things started to unravel, it was probably at about, I started to notice probably at about the 14, 15 year mark. And, um, you know, here's the thing. We don't know what we're not looking. We don't see what we're not looking for. Mm-hmm. And so in the marriage, when I can look back on things, there were, we, there were things, there were some, maybe some yellow flags, um, in the relationship that, you know, maybe some things that couldn't be, um, explained away, but you're not looking for those things. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and so then when I started to notice the unraveling, um, uh, I started to, what I call began a hustle. There's Mm -hmm. a hustle that we do and we start to feel a person slip away. Um, emotionally, we can kind of feel that there's a a change in the relationship Mm -hmm. and our relationship had been full of laughter and life. We had friends and uh, we were well connected in our community, church, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. But there had been a shift and I couldn't explain it. Mm-hmm. And as a therapist, I'm very much about addressing the elephant in the room. Totally. I want to say, what's happening here? There's something happening. I feel that things are different. What's happening? But there's there was never any kind of like a, a response that's, that satisfied me. It didn't, it didn't, nothing was making sense. And, uh, and so as we kind of like traveled the last three years of our relationship, I could, I could feel the slipping away happen. And when mm-hmm. we feel that happening, it throws us into this bit of a tailspin around um, really second guessing every move that we're, we're making. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there was evidence of um, things going on behind the scenes, and mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't able to identify what those things were, and I and I knew that something was going on, but I I I couldn't explain it away. Um, I knew that there was pornography use, and when I when I addressed that, it went sideways, and okay. so it, there was just there were all these kind of things that were ha- happening for the last couple of years that were adding up. And, um, and then one day, um, he said he was done. And so I don't really know how to kind of explain what that was like when you, when you say that, you know, when you look at this life that you've built together in a community that you've had together, and then the person has just said, I'm done. I don't want to be responsible to you or Mm -hmm. for you anymore. And I kind of moved into panic mode where I was just like, I'll do whatever it takes. I remember sitting at his feet and just like begging him. It's just like, don't forget who I am. Please remember our relationship. I, Mm -hmm. I'm your, I'm your wife. I don't know where you are, but I, I, we can work through this. We can make this happen. I started leaving notes everywhere. I was making sure that I was doing all the right things, right? I was cooking the right meals. I was Mm. being, you know, the exact, trying to fit into all the spaces I thought that maybe were, um, that I had maybe left things undone. Yeah. So in particular, the notes I started, I I really had felt that he was grappling with something, that there was something going on outside Mm -hmm. of the relationship. And I, and I, I felt that there was a a strong moral struggle for him and, and, uh, and he was denying it, but it was just, uh, just a sense that I had. And so I started leaving notes like you are loved, you are loved, you are loved Mm -hmm. everywhere in the house. And while it felt like the right thing for me to do at the time, I realized that what I was doing was I was, um, I was forgetting myself in the whole process. Mm. I had lost myself in the hustle. And while I was hustling to, to bring him back and to help him remind uh, him, help to remind him who, who I was and who we were and who our family was, I lost myself in that. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I think in my practice, I see a lot of women do that. There's a lot of, um, giving up of ourselves and, um, we're well, we're willing to sacrifice and compromise. Um, and, and please don't, you know, hear what I'm not saying. Like we're supposed to be compromising in our relationships on some level, obviously, sure. and, and sacrificing love is sacrificial. It's an action word, mm-hmm. um, where we, where we put the other person ahead of us. Right. Um, but in those situations where we find ourselves in the hustle, there's a desperation that comes that um, we, we, in some ways, kind of like, we feed the soul wounding and mm-hmm. uh, we fan the flames of that a little bit. So, uh, yeah. So he said he, he was done. I hustled. I made myself a little bit crazy for many months. And then one day he just said, I, I am like really done. We're, this is over. I'm not, it's over. Mm. And, uh, and I said, oh, I, okay, he moved his stuff upstairs and um, that was it. And I remember that first night in my bed thinking, I don't even know how to move in this. I don't know Mm -hmm. who I am. I don't know what this means for my identity. I don't Mm -hmm. know how to explain this to my child. I don't know how to explain this to our people who will be completely shocked and blindsided. And um, and one day I came home and he had moved his stuff upstairs, like I said, and he was, I could hear him laughing um, Mm -hmm. at something, the television or something. And I just thought, I can't. I can't be here. Yeah. We can't live separate in the same house, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, And so I said, I'm just going to ask you to go for a couple of weeks while I pack up my stuff. I'll find a place to live. Mm -hmm. And and so my daughter at the time was living, wasn't living in the home. She was an adult and she had Mm -hmm. moved out of the home and she... Um, she and I found a, she actually found a little apartment in a different community and, and, and we had the movers come and my mom flew in out of town from out of town and Mm. some girlfriends came over and we packed up, you know, almost 20 years of relationship and moved into a little apartment. Wow. And, uh, and so that was kind of the end of that kind of season of my life. Yeah. But that's, that move then began the healing because I couldn't actually really act. I couldn't really address the healing until I found the separate space. So you did mention something in there that I wanted to just circle back to, and this is not a big part of your story at all, but you mentioned that there was like some pornography use and Mm -hmm. like, you didn't necessarily like 
think that that was like a you you addressed it, but it's not like you were like, oh, I think my marriage is going to be over or something like that. No, that's right. Can you kind of speak a little bit to? Because I'm sure there's people listening to this that think like pornography is not a big deal. Like that's not an indication of like there being like any kind of a problem. Like could you speak just like briefly to that and like mm-hmm. why that's something that you felt that you did need to address and just like things like that? Mm-hmm. So, so glad you mentioned that because I'm starting to risk it and and um, and speak to this even on social media because I think we underestimate the impact I know we underestimate the impact of pornography on yeah. our relationships um, and uh, it's actually a, like pornography is a sinister attack on connection and intimacy in the relationship mm-hmm. healthy relationships don't have space for pornography use mm-hmm. so well I think that there's this um, uh, almost this normalizing of it in our society because it's so accessible. What mm-hmm. we know to be true is it's actually, uh, it creates um, just a, a deep seated soreness in the relationship where people don't feel like they can be um, safe. It, it impacts intimacy, emotional intimacy as well, as sexual intimacy. Mm-hmm. It impacts connection. It impacts communication. And in many ways, it drives a wedge in the relationship. So mm-hmm. it's it's not just men who are using pornography. Obviously, women as well are accessing it. But it tends to be, especially for women that come through my door, because um, I'm working with women, it yeah. tends to be an ongoing problem and they don't know how to address it. They don't mm-hmm. know how to say, because... The, often the men will say, everybody's watching pornography. Right. Or, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not in love with her. I'm in love with you. Like, what's the big deal? But it feels like a violation mm-hmm. um, because, it, um, because it harms us at a, a bit of a soul level where we have that desire to be seen fully by someone and not feel like we have to compare or compete with. So it does, it does, kind, of, it does kind of impact that. I just wrote actually a post about this. I say in my Pornography is a sinister attack on the soul of the relationship. It targets self-esteem. It steals intimacy. It shows safety and trust the door. It destroys connection and invites deceit and shame into a place where trust and honor once stood. It masquerades as harmless, dares to call itself helpful, and then burrows a hole so deep in the user, so deep the user's forever broken, and the ones who love him filter every good thing through the shattering it leaves behind. Mm. Yeah. And we know from a psychology perspective, there's actually a brain change that happens. So mm-hmm. um, we, we see that what, what women will experience in their relationship, and of course, I'm, I know that women use pornography, but I'm just speaking to them sure. from my, my perspective. Sexual relationship changes once pornography yeah. is introduced. It's a little bit of a rabbit hole too, as well. I mean, if you if you check if you check this out on pornography, it's going to pop up other options. And what people find that they would never have thought to be um, sexually interesting to them, they're now interested in. And then sometimes, in many cases of women that I've spoken to, they start to notice their sexual relationship change. the The gentleness, the the um, the softness in the sexual intimacy part of the relationship changes, where there's more of a little bit of. Uh, and I've had women come through and say. I've suddenly, this guy's treating me like I'm a porn star and I don't know what's happened. Mm. And right away, I know what's happened. Exactly. There's this background of, is, does he use, does he access pornography? Um, it cheapens a sexual relationship because mm. it adds this element. It takes the person out of the scenario. And so it hurts women deeply. Yeah. And uh, I think we try to kind of like bend and shift in our relationships to try and accommodate and, and, um, um, and we maybe buy into the idea that, well, everyone's using it and we're the ones who are having a big deal. But I just, I mean, if, if there's a listener, please just let me set you free on this one. Pornography yeah. hurts us. This is not a, this is not a you problem. This is a them problem. I had, I had a gentleman I worked with many years ago say, you know, pornography is a lazy man's way. Mm. And, uh, and I thought that was like, oh, that's pretty sharp, right? Yeah. Pretty- yeah. I like that. Um, yeah. I know you said quick, but that wasn't quick. Sorry about no, that. No, no. I love that. No, that was so, I love interviewing. I got to tell you, I, I don't have favorites. I love everyone. All of my guests, I love them, but I really enjoy interviewing like therapists, social workers, like people in the field. I just, you guys have so many very bright things to share that I just really appreciate. <laughs> and then I always want to turn it into a counseling session for myself, but <laughs> we won't do that. But anyway. <laughs> Recovering so, from the bear attack. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Oh my goodness. But something that I do think is really 
interesting though, is like on the note of you being a therapist, like mm-hmm. you were going through this while you're literally counseling other people. And I'm sure, like I hold my counselor on a pedestal. Like sometimes I forget, like she's actually like a human that has like problems mm-hmm. at her own house. You know what I mean? But I yeah, yeah. like- these people are sitting in your chair and it's like, you're the one that's there to listen and to help them have, give them tools and work through this, whatever. Meanwhile, your world is like literally falling apart. How did you do that? How did you continue your professional life while your marriage was completely crumbling? Mm -hmm. So, my goodness, it is, it's a bit of a blur. I'll be really honest. Um, Mm -hmm those days were a bit of a blur. So I, I did end up taking a few days off, obviously to mm-hmm. uh, process. And then I had to move eventually. Like it was all the, you know, it took the time that I, I needed. Um, but I also needed to make money and yeah. I don't get paid if I don't work. So it's, uh, it was essential to be back in the office. Mm-hmm. One of the beautiful things about doing this for so long is I think we do learn how to compartmentalize on some level that we can sit with our client Um, but I would be lying to say that there weren't things that my clients might share that were, you know, uh, triggering or, um, you know, brought things forward. And so, um, I really had to, for myself as a person of faith, I spent a lot of time in prayer. So Mm -hmm. on my way to work, I was, I was, I, I still do. I pray for my clients, Mm -hmm. um, every day. And then, but in particular in the, in this season of my life, I was like, I cannot do this. I can't do Mm -hmm. it. I can't do it. I can't do it. God. So, uh, this has got to be all you. And what is remarkable about this is that in between clients, I would often, oh, and by the way, my office was situated, my window looked at the church I was married in. Oh. It was like right across the road is this church that I was married in. I know. It's just sick, right? But that would be, so I would say goodbye to my client. I would have often a panic attack Mm. or I'd go and have a little cry in the bathroom. And, um, and I would just be, I, I got, I trust you. I trust you, Lord, in this. Like, I trust you in this. And this was my, this was how I kind of like worked my way between sessions. And I have a lot of clients today who I was seeing still at the same time, they'll be ch- ch- checking in for maintenance or whatever. And they had no idea anything was going on for me. Okay. And that is a total miracle in my life that yeah, yeah. there was so much trauma happening in my, in my life. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I was so overwhelmed with what was going on behind the scenes. And mm-hmm. yet I was still, uh, yeah, I was still able to, to do that. And then have the panic attack in between the yeah. sessions, you know, you got your 10 minute window, you go to the washroom, yeah. you have a cry, you breathe yourself through it. Ugh. Um, you, you pray, you talk to your friend, um, yeah. and you get back in and you, and you remember what you're there for. And I'm, I'm there to, I'm there to talk to these people who are also going through things. Yeah. Wow. What was that like for you? You said that after he really did decide to leave, you were like, how am I going to tell our community they're going to be shocked by this? What was that like for you to like tell friends and family? And like, did Pete, what were people's reactions? And did people say things that were stupid? Like, how did that go? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, people are generally well-intentioned. For the most part, people were shocked. Yeah. Um, and I think the feedback that I got from some people too as well, if it's happened for you guys and the rest of us are up for grabs too, right? There's a yeah. sense of how does that even possible? Because that was completely out of the wheelhouse of what anybody would have thought. Um, and then of course there's, there's the questions like, well, what, what could you have done different and well-intentioned questions, but not helpful. Mm-hmm. And then the shoulds, I mean, good gracious people should us to death. I mean, we should ourselves to death. The people yeah. Should, um, oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, well, you should have done this or you should have, you know, maybe they would say that to your face. Oh yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like as if you just kind of casually walked away, like it was right. no big deal. Right. That's so yeah. rough. And maybe part of the struggle that we have as, um, and, and maybe this is in lots of different professions, but in, in my profession, there's this, you know, we just, we present things that may be a little bit more matter of fact, this is, this is what's happening. Meanwhile, yeah. there's this whole story that's sure. like, uh, you know, it's, and not only that, I've been, you know, oh, and I've also been curled up in the fetal position on the weekend in the closet. And, right, and um, right. I also, right. But this is how things are going to, this is how things are going to roll out here. We, so I think that on one hand, it's maybe we present things in a way that people feel that it's not as significant as a problem. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I've often said to people like, rest assured, my heart was broken. Mm-hmm. And um, Lisa Turkhurst, who's one of my favorite authors, yes. she's been through 
hell and all the things. And she said, I licked the floor of hell. Yeah. And when I read that, I was like, there it is. There it is. That's what that felt like. There was, there were months of licking the floor of hell. And then I would be back at work and I'd be, Hey, how's it going? How's your week? Yeah. You know, people say, how are you holding up? Good. Thanks for asking. Now let's like move on. Right. So it was totally, it's what we do. We, we impression manage, we have to kind of like put our, uh, put our best foot forward. So that's what, yeah, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a dance for sure. Yeah. It's so hard. You know, it's, it's so hard because of course we want to be like vulnerable, authentic people, but at the same time, like life is happening and you have to just like get on with it to a degree. You know, I remember Mm -hmm. this is not the same thing, but my brother died about eight years ago and I had just gotten a new job. And so, you know, I took off like a week and then I went back to work, you know, and I, Mm, I'm not saying I never fell apart at work, but like I was very together. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I can even sit here and talk to you. I can speak about it matter of factly without breaking down. Like that's just something about me. I break down all the time to my husband. (laughs) You know what I mean? But (laughs) like not really like out and about because it's like I'm doing my day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's not like I'm trying to be inauthentic or hide my emotions or whatever, but you're just like, this is what happened. You know what I mean? And I'm sure there's times where I came, I came across very like, yeah, my brother died. Thank you. So, oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. So anyway, mm-hmm. da, 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 you know what I mean? Because you're like, yes, I can't yeah. lay it all out every time, no. you know, like, so for you, right. when you're telling people that your marriage is over, you're not going to be like sobbing with every person, right. giving them the whole last five years about like, you're just, Hey, listen, this is what's happened. Yep. yep. yep totally sucks. Let's move on with this because I'm not going to have a whole thing right now. You know, I'm not doing the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's hard. That's a hard dance. That really, it really is. Um, you mentioned a few times when you were sharing your story, you were saying like soul wounds, like you said that, and that was like in your book. And I really, I thought that was, I've never really heard, I guess someone use that term, like a soul wound, but it's like immediately, you know what that means, you know, Mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit like about that. Like what is a soul wound and share, just kind of tell us about that. Yeah. It's a little, you know, there's certain words when I say them, I feel like, oh my gosh, that's just such cheese ball words, but no soul wounds, like our soul wound for me, when I think about that, it's like, um, uh, it makes me feel something. I am very I really feel that we are built for connection Mm -hmm. and belonging. We can be, we can speak about Brene Brown and her like shame research. And uh, she's, she's really kind of called attention to what, what are we made for? We're made for connection and belonging. I'm so grateful that she's, she's, you know, spoken to this. And because of that, when we are unchosen, Mm -hmm. when the person says you no longer belong, um, it gets us at a core level. It hits us right at our soul level. So yeah. if I'm created for connection and belonging and I have this covenantal agreement with somebody and that connection is, it's solid. It's between me and him and, and God. And that's our, that's our soul connection. And then that's broken. I'm told that I'm no longer wanted. I'm, mm. I'm unchosen. Uh, yeah, that's a soul wound that gets us right at our core. And for that reason, we can be very easily drawn into finding ways to fill that gap. It's like somebody mm-hmm. tell me that I'm wanted. Somebody yeah. choose yeah. me. And it can it can launch us into all kinds of um all kinds of choices and behaviors to try mm-hmm. and fill that fill that wound. But um it's not it's not usually something that can be fixed with temporary I, I say in my book, I talk in my book how I, I got on a dating site. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, some well-meaning friends suggested like, you're still desirable. You're still wanted. Totally. You're still like, go get on a dating site and you'll see. And I'm like, I don't want to go on a dating site. I'm not mm-hmm. ready. I'd only been out of my relationship for a little while. And and I don't have any issue with dating sites. I just knew I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. And so the chatter continued. Come on, come on. People were living vicariously through me. So yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> that is really what it is. <laughs> yeah, I get on. That's what it is. Let's see. <laughs> dating site. And I was blown away by what, Hey, what happens on these dating sites is like, yeah. I'm not, this is what, not going to be, there is no dating site that is going to fix that soul wound. I had yeah. to do some really serious work on myself. Um, and to recognize what it was a, why did this hurt so much? Do you know what is so interesting to me? Grief used to be, we used to think that grief was an experience reserved for death. 
Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely not an experience reserved for death. Grief yeah. is um, something we do where loved ones would was right, and so mm-hmm. um, where you know, it's, I say it's a placeholder. And uh, so I grieved, and I needed to grieve well, and I needed to be intentional about my grieving in order for that wound to be healed, um, so that I could I could move forward in in the in the way that was healthy for me. Yeah. 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 I, I love that. I mean, when I, I heard a different, um, interview with you and when I heard you say, like, it was my first time hearing of your name and you were like, you know, that's a rejection is a deep soul wound. I just like, I like exhaled. Like I was like, Oh yeah. Like that makes sense. And like you talk about in your book, grieving the living, or I forget exactly how you said it, but it's like, we think that grief just means someone has died. And yeah, that is that. But you can grieve someone that's alive. Absolutely. Yeah. You could, you know, yeah. and so um, I appreciated that. Okay. So you said, you know, you got on the dating site and yeah, obviously yeah. <laughs> no shade to dating sites. Well, cause the funny nope. thing is, you know, we just had Sarah Gonzalez on, mm-hmm. you know, and she talks about how she met that guy on hinge. Yes. who was like a freaking psycho, but then she met yeah. her current husband on hinge. Yeah. So oh, that's right. Pros that's and cons, pros, pros and cons. cons. Pros yeah. And cons. yeah. 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 It, it works sure. and it doesn't. Yeah. So yeah. whatever, nope. live your yeah. life. But for you, you weren't at a stage yet where that no. you could do that. You had to do the work first. So what does that mean though? Like, what is the work? Like, what did you do? How did you heal from the soul wound? And does it ever really heal and take us there? Yeah, it is, um, a, it, it's an intentional process of an intentional journey. And it, on some levels, it looks different for everybody. But I think the primary starting point is to recognize the wound and to say like, this is, really painful. And what pain often does is it causes us to a, well, the fight, flight, or freeze, um, kind of response. So we can run from it and we often run from it to something else, which is often not healthy. Um, or we can fight and that's where the revenge stuff starts to show up. And I'll be really honest, like I had some revenge fantasies. Oh, I'm (laughs) sure. (laughs) Let's just, yeah, that's a different podcast, but I, I was, um, really, angry. And so I was, you know, ready to go. I was wanting, there was times in my grieving that I had to say, yeah, I'm angry. This has been, something's been taken from me. It's been taken from my daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, the, our, our community of friends changed. And, uh, so it was a very big, uh, big move to kind of identify what is the wound? What am I actually, what am I actually hurting from? What is this? And I talk in the book about rejection itself isn't necessarily the problem. The problem is the meaning we give it. Yeah. And the the other, the other things that kind of show up alongside it. Right. So um, for me, part of the healing was noticing what am I actually healing from? What is this? What has hurt me? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I did a lot of journaling. I did a lot of exercising. Yeah. I did a lot of praying. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I sought I, I sought out a counselor. I sat with a counselor on a regular yeah. basis, and uh, did a lot of um, a lot of talk therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, and in from in my life, what was really important for me was that I absolutely needed to get um, to start to see myself the way God says I am. Mm-hmm. Because what had happened was rejection caused me to view myself through the lens of this person, and I needed to start to see myself through the lens of the man who stayed instead of through the lens of the man who left. Mm, Say that again. That's so good. Yeah. I needed to see myself through the eyes of the man who stayed instead of through the eyes of the man who left. Yeah. And that was essential for my healing. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's a process. Yeah. So I gave myself, um, I, when I look back, it was a full year, but I would, I would say in my head, I had decided I need to take a full year of just, really, really digging deep and, Mm -hmm. and working through some of the, from some of the hurt, Mm -hmm. owning what's mine to own, taking responsibility for the things I could have done different in the relationship or, Mm -hmm. um, maybe flags that I didn't notice earlier on or things that I could have said or done differently. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then doing the, the work of, of getting through it. You need to sleep well, you need to eat well, you need to exercise. All of these things are really essential. We think it's just kind of like fluffy, but it's essential for healing. And, uh, so that was all part of the journey for me for sure for a year. Mm, That is so interesting. You know, I, when I interviewed pastor John, O, he talked about, um, losing his brother and he was grieving and he said he got deeply, deeply depressed 
And when he went to a counselor, the first thing that they dealt with was the physical stuff, getting mm-hmm. him to sleep. He was like, I first started taking melatonin so that mm-hmm. I could sleep at night. You know yeah. what I mean? And he's like, that's, that's real stuff. Like yep. physically caring for yourself is a real, real part of it. And I think yep. we don't think of that a lot, you yep. know? So I, I love how you said, like, I exercised, I yep. slept, I, you know, whatever. But also you being a counselor, you got in with a counselor yeah, and sat sure. with someone. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably helped you still be able to be effective. Yeah, good point. Good point. And she was essential too, because, you know, listening, having someone outside of your outside of your circle of friends, outside of your family, because yeah. people are they're hurting with you. They're, they're biased. They're connected. They, they have rage fantasies too. Right. I had friends say, listen, let's just put something in his food. Totally. Oh, totally. People. So we can't get counsel from those people because they're going to give us biased counsel. Um, and so to go to someone outside of your life who can listen to what you're saying and then feed back to you what they're hearing and then work with you on perspective shifting and work with you on some of the healing strategies and holding you accountable for some of the things that you say you want and need in your life. That is like priceless. It really yeah. is essential. So uh, you know what else was really priceless was for, for me, I missed physical touch. Mm. Single is, um, I, so I just took myself to the spa. I, yeah. uh, like I just let myself get a massage every once in a while, or I get, you know, a pedicure or something like that. Or, and I, I made intentional physical connections with people where I'd just make that contact because we also need that for wellness. So letting mm-hmm. yourself, um, isolation as a narrative therapist, pro- we know that problems, um, thrive in isolation. And so when we isolate ourselves physically, we decline, emotionally, we decline, mentally, we decline. So, but pain causes isolation a lot of the time. And so that's why we want to make sure that we, we, we move away from that and we move into being connected with people, accessing other people who are healthy and well for us and doing mm-hmm. those things that are going to contribute to health, um, the healing process. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned in your book about like confirmation bias and mm-hmm. how like when we're rejected, like that kind of comes into play. Can you mm-hmm. t- explain that for people who don't know? Mm-hmm. Confirmation, confirmation bias is this kind of phenomenon. We all do it. We basically just see what we want to see. So yeah. that's kind of the simple short form of it. But what we know to be true is we develop a philosophy that we believe is true. And then we collect evidence and material to prove that it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, rejecting evidence to the contrary. So we just see what we want to see. So I want to believe something is true of me. I'm rejectable. Then I'm going to collect evidence in my life that I'm rejectable. I'm going to notice the times where that guy didn't respond to, you know, when I was a teenager, and didn't respond to my phone call or, or that person who didn't like my posts on Instagram, or mm-hmm. I'm going to start collecting evidence that I'm rejectable, that people don't want me, that people don't like me. And that confirmation bias becomes the frame and the lens through which I view everything. The problem is, is there's all this other evidence that I'm not rejectable, that I am wanted, but I'm not collecting that because I've got this confirmation bias. I've decided this is true. And so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing only evidence of that truth. Yeah. So it's like when you've been rejected, it's so easy to then think about when you lost a job, yeah, like all these other yes. things. And you're like, yeah. well, it must be me. Like, obviously me. I suck. Yeah. Yeah. I totally suck. Yeah. And you use this example in the book about this woman, Wendy. Mm. Can we like sidestep and talk about Wendy for just like five quick minutes and then we'll get back to your story? Because I was really impacted by that example. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my goodness, like how how much do we do this like in our life? Tell mm. us a little bit about her. Yeah, so Wendy um, was an offender that I worked with when I worked with corrections and she was serving um, a sentence when I started working with her. She was actually in a... Um, a segregation cell. And so I had to see her through a meal slot and uh, which was very counter therapeutic. It's not, it's not therapeutic to see anybody through a meal slot. Um, And then, you know, through some of the work of trying to, can we get this woman a little bit more freedom for therapy? And so then she was able to come into a a room, a windowed room with me, but shackled and handcuffed as well. Still not therapeutic, but at least we could sit across from each other. Sure. And then uh, finally, we were able to just kind of meet independently. And this was an ongoing process for a long period of time. But part of the work was our correctional system is different in Canada than in the States and that people do 
they get to a place where they can be released. And she knew she was going to be released whether she was ready or not. And I was supposed to be helping her prepare for release. Okay. And we had a great plan finally put in place. And then she um, was standing at the gate and it was time to go. And, and she just wasn't sure that she could do it. Mm-hmm. She, she had told me prior to her release that she said, you know, I know the air is going to smell different on the other side of those gates. Um, I'm going to get, you know, McDonald's with as many fries as I can possibly manage. I want a milkshake. It's going to be fantastic. And we stood at the gate and she was like, I don't think I can do it. Mm. I don't think I can be well. And um, I don't think I know how to be free. Yeah. And so that, when I look back on her, I, and eventually, I mean, she had to go, we took her to her place and she ended up doing really well for a period of time. And then um, she found herself back in the system again. And, um, and our most recent contact was, which was a few years ago. Now she said, you know, women like me don't live, don't live free. We don't get to live free. Hmm. And I thought she was so fixed on the labels that had been put on her. She had been the victim of a number of different, um, uh, systemic problems and abuse in her life. And, um, she had learning disabilities and then she had this criminal you know, criminology, uh, criminality in her life. Mm -hmm. And she found herself in the correctional system. And there she was with all these labels. She was believing herself to be a certain way. And so she just couldn't see outside of those labels to live as a free person. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so those labels brought her back to jail, essentially, where she just decided that's where I'm, that's where I'm supposed to be. And I I often say like, I want to work my release plan. I Mm -hmm. want to work my release plan. And there isn't, uh, if I focus on the things that have happened and the, the, the names that I've been called or the labels that have been slapped on me or um, whatever it might be, it's very easy to stay stuck mm-hmm. underneath the oppression of those labels. Mm-hmm. But I want to work my release plan. I want to live free of that. And while very bad things have happened to Wendy, to other people, to myself, in your life too, Mm-hmm. we can stay really, really closely tied to those things. And, um, or we can decide that, well, they're part of our story. They don't have to be the main part of our story. They don't mm-hmm. have to influence everything. And, uh, and so, yeah, Wendy, as far as I know, is still in, in a cell. Yeah. When I was reading about her, I just felt like, oh gosh, like the things that we believe about ourselves, it's mm-hmm. like we make them so. You you know what I mean? Like, and it's like, how often do we sabotage ourselves and do that? And so like back to your story, it's like, you know, you were rejected in a horrible way. You were married to this man for 20 years. You know what I mean? Like you built a life with him and he rejected you and you could Mm. then go on and feel like, okay, like I'm worthless. And you could see yourself through his eyes, like you were saying, like, mm-hmm. just kind of like, okay, well, like I'm unlovable. I'm whatever, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like whatever it is that he said to you, mm-hmm. but you have to like change that narrative or you mm-hmm. will stay in that place or become that person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And I yeah. just think that that's so crazy because like for me, like, I don't know if you know about the, Enne- do you do the Enneagram at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a one. Okay. I'm a very loud inner critic. Yeah. And I say things, negative things about myself all the time. Mm-hmm. And my husband is always like, you have to stop doing that because mm-hmm. it's like you then believe that about yourself and will be that. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like if you're like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Or like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, or, oh, I'm so this. Like, oh, I always do this. I'm so that. Like, it- then it's just kind of like you become <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, just language counts. Hey, like yeah. what we say to ourselves about ourselves, it matters. And so mm-hmm. we have to be kind to ourselves. And um, yeah, like um, the whole kind of idea of like, nobody should be speaking to your kid's mom like that. Right. Nobody should be yes. speaking to your husband's wife that way. Yeah. And, you know, we, we do this, this inner critic so well as women, don't we? And yeah. I often say like, let's, I had this one woman monitor once this was years ago. I had her monitor everything that she was saying to herself about herself. And she mm-hmm. wrote this like journal. She came back the next week. She said, I did it for a day. And she had like pages and pages and pages of the things that she'd said to herself about uh-huh. herself, critical, awful things, things like she'd walk in front of the, she was giving an example. She's like, oh, I just walked in front of the mall. I caught a glimpse of myself 
in the window, fatty, right? Like, oh, you're so gross. Or why are you wearing those pants? Like just constantly kind of those criticisms. And then I said, I asked her, I said, so I want you to read those. I want you to picture your your kids or some child that you love. She had kids, so speaking Mm -hmm. about her children. And I want you to look at them. She actually had a picture of her child that she pulled up. Um, I want you to picture reading those words to your kid. Would Mm -hmm. you ever, to your child, to Mm -hmm. your beautiful child, would you ever use those words? And the answer is no, of course not. Right. Why is that? Because it would it would harm them. It would disable them emotionally. It would be um, abusive. It would be right. But you want to thrive saying those same things to yourself. It's, we do this, right? We just critically, so we critically assess ourselves all the time. Yeah. Mm, it's so important. Yeah. Um, you talked about, you know, a lot of the book you talk about being in the valley of rejection. Mm-hmm. I just like love like the words you use and like the imagery and all of that. Um, but there was this quote um, that I'm going to read to you that I was like, whoa, like I read it out loud to my husband. Mm. Um, so you're talking about rejection and you said our brains respond as though we have been physically injured. This is why rejection hurts more than we think it will. A few years ago, scientists studying rejection placed people in MRI machines and asked them to recall recent experiences with rejection. Amazingly, the areas of the brain that were activated during this experiment are the same areas activated during experiences with physical pain. Even small rejections evoke serious emotional pain. I thought that was so interesting that like the Mm -hmm. same part of your brain lights up like physical pain when Mm -hmm. you are remembering like a rejection experience and things like that. I just think Mm -hmm. that that's so like crazy because I think it's so easy for us to, again, like kind of like we talked about this before. It's very easy for us, I think, to separate like the physical body from like our emotional self. It's like very interesting to see yeah. how it really goes. It's all one. It's all one. Yeah, you're so right. And I, I, when I found that study too, I thought it makes really good sense. You know how people say, um, you know, when you have a baby and it's it's painful, and you're like, oh, you'll forget the pain. You'll forget the pain. And um, I, like, I, I for one will not forget the pain. But mm-hmm. I think like. And the same is true with rejection, right? Yeah. Like I think yep. there's a sense of, um, I, I can easily weep for my younger self mm-hmm. sitting on the floor at the feet of this man and looking at these deadpan eyes and thinking like, I, uh, like, choose me, choose, please choose me. Right. Like yeah. I, I can, I can feel how that feels. I know how that, um, and it is it's physical and emotional at the same time. And I think that women, especially we remember what we feel. And so they often say, you know, you want your, your partner to watch football with you, tell her some of the stories of the background of these football players. And she's oh my in, gosh. right. Right. Totally. Who are they married to? Right. Which celebs? Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Totally. So now <laughs> we're in now I'll watch football. Right. Yep. So it's, it's similar. I think we, because we remember what we feel, there is this sense of, um, and because we were built for connection and belonging, mm-hmm. rejection is an assault on connection and belonging. Mm-hmm. And so we feel that very, very deeply. And so that kind of uh, made really good sense when I came across that study. I thought, okay, that, but that it would actually light up the same receptors in the brain is it's crazy. Shocking. Yeah. 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 It really is. So interesting. Yeah. It really is. Um, you talk in the book about how you practice something called narrative therapy. Yeah. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah. So I, I kind of use a bit of a hybrid narrative therapy and um, cognitive behavior therapy. We, mm-hmm. we know a lot about cognitive behavior yes. therapy, um, kind of the standard, but um, narrative therapy was developed um, by a couple gentlemen, um, Michael White and David Epstein in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And it's a strengths-based therapeutic approach. These guys were ser- social workers. So it's a bit mm-hmm. of a homecoming for me. I'm comfortable in the, yeah. the language. And essentially what the bottom line is, what they say is, you know what, we, um, we all have a, a collection of stories that kind of make up our identity about who we are. And, um, and so part of the work of narrative therapy is helping people kind of look at the stories um, differently and help them use their skills and assets to work through some of these stories. And the, the kind of the clincher for me, which I love is you're not the problem the problem's the problem. And so mm. narrative therapists will often say that to their client is like, you're not the problem. The problem's the problem. So how do we change your relationship 
to the problem. And it's really liberating for people because when they can step away from the problem and say, okay, so I have, I have some um, learned experiences. I have some skills. I have some abilities to navigate um, problems in the past. How am I going to apply what I know to this current problem? And so let's say, for example, the problem is rejection. And someone shows up in my office and says, you know, I've been rejected by whoever, by a parent, by a friend, by a yeah. spouse. Um, and uh, so then what we do in, the, in as a narrative therapist is I, is I try to create a little bit of distance from the problem around, okay, so I'll ask a question like, what is rejection taken from you that you would like back? What does mm. rejection not know about you that you think would be important for it to know? Mm. What are some of the times in your life where rejection has shown up in your life, but you've you've been able to stand up to it or overcome it or work work around it? So mm-hmm. you kind of ask almost like distancing questions. Yeah. Um, and uh, And people find that really liberating. Totally. I can see yeah. that. Yeah, it's an interesting approach and uh, and kind of fun to work with. And and um, and a lot of people actually name the problem. So a lot of the work that I do with women is anxiety. It seems to be probably the biggest problem that comes through the door. Yeah. And um, and some women will actually name their anxiety. Bertha, mm. Betty, you know, Jones. Yes. And so like when anxiety shows up and tries to steal away something they're excited about or want to do. Yeah. Um, it's this kind of like, wait a second, I know what you're up to kind of approach around like these mm-hmm. are the, you know, I've seen you before. I know what you're up to. So it's a bit of a distancing. It can be kind of fun. And of course we yeah. work that into with the cognitive behavior therapy and cognitive behavior therapy is thoughts inform feelings, feelings inform behaviors. And so we need to change the thoughts, change the interpretation of the event. So the feelings will change. And so when you link those two together, which I've done like at the back of each chapter, those, so the recovery section where there's some just in different narrative therapy questions and some cognitive behavior therapy strategies as well. So it's a nice hybrid, mm-hmm. actually. They work really nicely together. Totally. I think that's so interesting to like personify your anxiety or whatever. You know, I actually um, suffered from an eating disorder years ago, was in recovery counseling for a lot of years. And the most helpful book I ever read was called Life After Ed. Ed, and yeah. Right. Okay. So I'm, yeah. And I thought that that was like really life-changing. Like when you name it and like my husband will say that to me to today. Like if I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that or something. He's like, that's Ed saying that. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's not even, you know that that's not Uh, true, you know? And you're like, that it it really is so helpful. It sounds like stupid at first. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of like, okay, I'm not a child, but like, no, it right. really, like, it really works mentally. It does work. And that's a great example of um, this kind of, like, narrative experience with Ed. Because, yeah. like, well, what does Ed want to take from you that you yeah. would like back? What has he been um, vying for in your life that you don't want him to take anymore? And yeah. um, if you could um, wake up and Ed was never no longer a problem, how would life be different? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, it's just a lovely way to kind of distance yourself. I love that example. Yeah. Life without Ed. Yeah. Absolutely. So you do get around to in your book talking about forgiveness, which is a Mm -hmm. tough one for people. Yeah. It was like, I didn't even know you before an hour ago. And I felt like sensitive of you in the book. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I was like, you shouldn't forgive him. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, we feel defensive of our friends and things. And we're like, you don't really need to like forgive him. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's like natural, I think to feel that way. And I loved in the book when you talked about like a lot of like the myths that there Mm -hmm. are about forgiveness. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously you don't need to like give the exhaustive list, but like, what Mm -hmm. are some common things that we believe about forgiveness, like what forgiveness is, but it's not. Mm-hmm. We believe that forgiveness is letting someone off the hook. That's the biggest yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. And so if I if I forgive him, then he's been let off the hook. Yeah. And uh, and I say really clearly in my book now he he deserved to be squarely on the hook for what he did. Yes. Um, I didn't want him to be let off the hook. So if I held unforgiveness, then that kept him on the hook. But that actually kept me on the hook. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's the primary one that comes through the door. And yeah. I think that. Um, you know, when we think about what, what does that actually mean? The other person's kind of going about their business. It has no, there's no hook involved for them. Um, but I am carrying the torch. Yeah. I'm spending my time ruminating and spending and thinking about, um, 
you know, whatever it is, the rage fantasies or the, you sure. know, the revenge fantasies, whatever it might be. Um, and they're just doing their life. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that realization was a really important one for me. I realized that I needed to take, I needed to step away from that myth. Um, the other one that, uh, the chapter that is, that you're referring to is a chapter on forgiveness. I'm the one I'm afraid to write. I wrote it last in my book yeah, because I course, was yeah. really struggled. I struggled my, with my, with forgiveness for sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, the other thing that comes, comes up for people is, well, if I forgive them, then I have to be in a relationship with them. It means yeah. that I'm like, now I have to reconcile or I have to even necessarily like let them know that I've forgiven them. Yeah. And I think that that's really scary for a lot of people, especially depending on what it is you're trying to forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have to be in the, in a relationship with the person who's harmed you. Yeah. Forgiveness isn't about necessarily reconciliation. Sometimes it is. Sometimes people yeah. reconcile, but it doesn't have to be. That's not a, that's not the formula. Um, yeah. for, forgiveness can be just a thing that you do all by yourself. You don't even have to contact them to let them know that you've done that. Yeah. There was that one quote in the book that I wrote down because I loved it. You said like, forgiveness is something completely separate from the other person. It's an agreement between you and God. It does not condone or agree with what the other person did, nor does it require us to be in relationship with them or forget how they hurt us. I loved that. It's something completely separate from the other person. Yeah. I, we forget that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's like, no, forgiveness, forgiving someone is between you and God. Yeah. You don't have to call them and be like, hi, I forgave you, by the way. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I just thought that was so good. Yeah. And you know, unforgiveness keeps us attached to the person who's harmed us. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, I'm out. Like, I don't, I don't want to be attached to that person anymore. And so, um, and, and I'll be honest, there was a, there was there was a time where, and, and it's hard to kind of express what's in my head this way, but unforgiveness does keep us attached to the person who's harmed us. And at the beginning, that's what I wanted. I didn't want yeah. it to be done. I was like, well, if of I'm course. just going to hold on to this, you know, then I can stay. It's, it's a closer up experience and the letting the, like letting go and, and going through the process of forgiving was a distancing thing. I had to be ready for that. And when I, when I, when I dropped the torch that had been handed to me through that rejection and through, um, um, you know, the betrayal and the things that I, that I, uh, you know, the, the torch of that was handed to me in that valley that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was able to drop the torch and say, I'm not bringing you, I'm not bringing what's happened to me. I'm not allowing that to keep me from moving forward in my life, moving forward in the life that I felt that God was calling me towards. Sure. And, um, and, and also interrupting my relationship with God, right? Yeah. I, I needed to be free of that unforgiveness in order to move forward in freedom. And, uh, and that was, that was a big move. And it's not a thing. This is the other thing. It's like, people think it's a one and done and that is not the truth. Forgiveness is generally not a one and done. Um, unless you're like supernatural and superhuman and just like, that is not my, no, that is not me. No, it's a process, right? It's like, totally. (laughs) My gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to flare up, right? Um, mm-hmm. wounds, wounds open. And one of the things I speak about, the reason that the, the cover of my book has got this, um, these hands with the kind of the gold on the hands. I, I'm really drawn to the yeah. Japanese art form of Kintsugi mm-hmm. and um, the breaking and then the repairing of pottery with gold and how mm. the philosophy, of course, is that you know our wounds are not to be hidden. And in fact, it's our wounds and the breaking that makes us more beautiful. And Mm. so when I was able to kind of like look at forgiveness as, listen, when I, when I can go through the process of forgiveness, the, this still is part of my story, but the, the healing can take place and that can actually make me stronger. It can make me more, um, I don't know, a better person, more ready for the next, next season of my life Mm -hmm. and more in tune with who God's calling me to be. So the, the forgiveness helped with the healing process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's very freeing to hear from you, even just like, it's such a process and it's like not a one and done. And there, you know, it's trendy to say things like that triggered me, but like, mm-hmm. it's true. Things yeah. do trigger us. Like it's a real yeah. thing. So, yeah. you know, it's true that it's something to always like keep coming back to God with it because mm-hmm. it's going to come up. Like if someone has really deeply rejected you, in that way, it's going to come up yeah. for a long time. Cause like you said, yeah. that's a soul wound. That's yeah. a deep, 
a deep wound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That still comes up for me. These are the things that are constant, like recognizing that, oh, that's what that is, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, um, yeah, there's a process that I kind of go through where I recognize like this, I'm just continually giving it back to where it needs to be, right? Giving, continuing mm-hmm. giving it back to, for me, to God, to like, I, when the flare-ups come or the triggers happen, I'm, I'm, I'm in the practice now of saying, okay, I know what that is. Mm-hmm. I recognize what that is. It doesn't serve me anymore. A narrative therapy strategy that I absolutely love is it's a filter process. Does this grow me up or down? Does mm. this grow me towards the woman I want to be or away from her? Does this um, heal me or harm me? And so any that filter is really helpful with any kind of decisions or thought patterns or whatever it might be. If I engage in this thinking does it heal me or harm me? Does it grow me up or grow me down? And so when I can filter it that way, it, it kind of like, it gives me a different perspective on it. Totally. Totally. I love that. So you told us that you have a new husband. How yeah. did that come Good. about? Like, how were you able to feel healthy enough to have mm-hmm. a new relationship? Like, tell us about him a little bit and your relationship. Yeah. Well, your question about how do you feel healthy enough? How do you know? And I think that everybody's process is very, very different and depending on what you've gone through. And, and so for me, I, I was able to start to notice, um, you know, I often say like, I could, I could smell things different. I could hear things different. I could experience joy different. I could start, I, you can feel healing happen as it, as you go through the motions, as you go through the work of it. And so for me, after that one year, I was, I was very aware that, um, while there were still some cracks in the pot, so to speak, the healing was well underway. And I was able to kind of see myself in, you know, down the road, what was it going to look like? I was feeling, Mm -hmm. um, closer to that woman that God says I am, as opposed to that woman that I had been left to feel like I was. Yeah. Um, so the really cool thing about the story is that Brent was actually um, my first love when I was a teenager. So it's a great, it's a, just a beautiful like Hallmark movie really, because yeah. I had, um, I had, you know, met Brent when I was 13, 14 years old. And I, I have a whole binder full of poetry to him. I'd sign my name, practice my name. Oh. I even wrote on there. I've been able to show my mother-in-law, I will marry, you know, Brent Langman. And, and you so saved it's all a, that stuff? Oh yeah. I traveled oh, I across the country. That. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's quite. <laughs> and oh. so of course then, um, you know, and he, he and I dated for a very short time and then that didn't work out. I say that he was my first actual rejection, but, uh, <laughs> Thanks for that. He started you on the road to this. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. (laughs) Uh, And so then he, um, you know, he got married and I uh, moved actually across the country to British Columbia, which is just above Washington state and uh, lived there for 27 years. Most of this happened on the West coast of Canada. Yeah. And so I, um, when things fell apart in British Columbia, I moved back um, to Ontario and, um, and Brent and I were able to kind of pick up a friendship. And mm-hmm. we had been kind of um, enjoying a friendship over, you know, a few months. And then it just became something, something different as time went on. And while our stories are very different, my, mm-hmm. my marriage ended in divorce. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, Brent lost his, his wife um, mm-hmm. to a battle of cancer and, and they had, they enjoyed a beautiful relationship. Mm-hmm. And so his, what he shows up in, in our relationship with is very different than what I show sure. up with. Um, but we both show up with loss. We yes. both show up with, um, um, you know, just things that might flare up from time to time. And so we're kind of learning how to navigate that together with our adult children who have also gone through their own traumas, right? Totally. And so, but it's been really um, such a gift from God for both of us, I think, mm-hmm. um, to have my first love back and to be able to mm. feel confident. Um, because, of course, I show up with trust issues. Of course. And, uh, and, and to be with this man who I have known for most of my life mm-hmm. um, and been able to, and our families maintain contact, uh, are still good, quite good friends. And, mm-hmm. and so I know this man mm-hmm. and I know that he's a man of integrity. And I know mm-hmm. that there are things that I got accustomed to or that I would worry about in that other relationship that I don't even have to think about anymore. Yeah, and yeah. That is a gift to me that um, I don't even know really how to put into words. So yeah. it's been it's been a fantastic few years and we're really enjoying 
enjoying this, uh, just this new opportunity together. That's amazing. That's so beautiful. I love that. Oh, Nicole, thank you so much. This was so good. Where can we find you online? If people want to hear more from you, where can they find you? Yeah. So, um, I'm on Facebook and Nicole Langman and, um, and also on, um, Instagram and, um, and my website is NicoleLangman.com. Awesome. And we can get your book anywhere. Amazon. And you get my book on Amazon for sure. Yes. Yep. And actually I'm just uh, working on the audio version of my book as well. So that'll be great to have that released as too. And will yeah. you read it? Yes, I'm reading oh, it. Oh, I love that. That's the best. Yeah. That's really yeah. good. And, and what do you exciting. think? Well, I've got you here. What do you think about with um, audio books um, when the author who's read, who's reading the book gives extra little tidbits along the way? Have you I read think books that's, like that? I think that's fantastic. Fun, yeah. right? People think that yeah. that's the okay. best because it's like yeah. they ad lib a little. You know what yeah, I mean? That's what and, I it's, do. Yeah. and it's like yeah. fun. I think that that I always yes. tell people if there's an audiobook that's read by the author, totally mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. Because it's more fun. Because sometimes I have listened to audiobooks that are just read by like the hired person. And it's like yes. fine. Of course, like yeah. they're professionals, they're doing it, but it's not mm-hmm. the you know what I mean? Like you can tell it's not the person who actually felt the things. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. 100%. So I think that's awesome. That's exciting. Congratulations. I'm glad you get to do that. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Kayla. I'm excited about it too. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Nicole, thank you so much for your time. This was yeah, so you. amazing. We'll link all your stuff in the notes and I know people are just going to love this. Uh, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions. Parable Productions.